0: The National Archives podcast series, The Pub and the People, presented by Simon Fowler and David Thomas. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to look at what the paper is trying to do to an extent is to look at contemporary accounts of what it was like to be a drinker and how the drinker's experience has changed over the last 70 years, or more simply, what were pubs like when my father started visiting them as a lad in the late 1930s? We start with a bit of context. Britain, between the walls, was a deeply divided country. There was an obvious gap between the poor north and the prosperous south, or perhaps between town and country. More subtly, there was a clear split between the social classes, one of which which comes out clearly when talking about pubs of the period, and also between modernity and tradition. This was the period of Metroland, wirelesses and the cinema, all of which, which took customers away from the pub particularly young people. English English In his book, English Journey, J.B. Priestley regretted that men no longer gathered in glee unions to sing part songs into the bit, as they had done when he was young. But instead, young people went to cocktail bars, which he argued was evidence of the Americanisation of British life. A more serious threat, and one that I don't think has really been studied, were clubs, which often sold beer cheaper than could be had in pubs, and avoided some of the petty restrictions that blighted the life of many a landlord. By 1935, there were nearly 15,000 such establishments uh, with more than 5 million members, mainly in industrial areas of the North and the Midlands. Yet, pubs remained immensely popular. The social survey, Mass Observation, found in Bolton that more people spend more time in public houses than they do in any other building, apart from private houses and workplaces. And this is true nationwide. And sometimes you wonder why. Pubs were generally very shabby places with minimal facilities, largely because brewers refused or were unable to refurbish their estates. The public bar of a typical East End pub was described as the walls are bare except for a dartboard and its scoring slate, a few display cards for proprietary drinks and a notice forbidding gambling or the passing of betting slips. There is sawdust (coughs) on the floor and two spittoons. And I suspect those of us who are old enough can remember those sort of pubs we used to go to when we were younger. Perhaps more seriously and more typically, one in four Brighton pubs had no hot water in 1938. And the fact that pubs were shabby put off many potential customers, women and more prosperous drinkers in particular. Britain never adopted prohibition, thank heavens, but the Temperance Lobby came pretty near to strangling the pub before and after the First World War through a raft of petty restrictions, most le- notably on opening hours and the banning of gambling. But other activities were discouraged. One observer saw a sign in the Sussex pub saying, there should be no loud laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, precisely. Uh, lastly, consumption of beer fell to the lowest level in history, less than half that it had been previously. In this, In part, this was because many drinkers could not afford to buy beer, In Bolton, drinking was largely confined to the last hour before uh, closing on Fridays and Saturdays. It's all they they have got the money for, said one sympathetic barmaid. And an observer in the East End wrote, the poorest of the men tend to order pints rather than half-pints, not only because they get the cheapest beer, but also because, to quote one of them, with half a pint you get near the bottom soon, and you see you can drink it up with a good gulp, but with a pint, you can last out a whole evening nearly before the bottom comes near enough. <laughs> and this was coupled with falling drunkenness, partly because beer was much weaker. Few accounts I've come across refer to drunkenness or even bad behaviour, except among the, except among the penniless intellectuals of Soho, where it seemed to be compulsory. <laughs> Drinking and pub going overwhelmingly seemed to be a sombre experience of the period. There was also what social reformers called the reformed or the improved pub, much larger establishments which offered a wide range of facilities from food to bowling green, with the intention of uh, attracting men and women from all parts of society. Such places were often built on the new arterial roads or suburbs in a four uh, arch- architectural style mocked as being Brewers Tudor or Tudor Bethan. Many traditional drinkers did not like them or the paternalistic intentions which lay behind them. One book on pub architecture wrote of the public bar at the Norbury Tavern. The large, bleak interior that resulted from the attempt to design pubs that would not look, not look like pubs, sometimes indistinguish from post offices or banks, they deny the, deny the whole population of people getting together and socialising. You would sit, you would be served by waiters, um, the conditions would be so that the, the wife and the family could come and there would be lots of facilities for you. But what you wouldn't do, what you couldn't do, was to really enjoy yourself, get drunk, and, and, and socialise. This is an Orby Tavern, which I say is an example of um, uh, a reformed pub or new model pub of the 1930s. I'm not sure whether it's still operating or not. I, I couldn't find any evidence of it still still in existence. Um, I'd be grateful if somebody know could tell me whether that's the case or not. Um, Also, the other problem with these new model pubs, the landlords, the the breweries had to recoup their cost. It was immensely expensive to to build these places um, and therefore they were quite expensive. So even when people did go to them or driven to them um, because there was nowhere else in the area, it was very expensive. I've been looking for accounts of pubs and I've used three different sources. Firstly are the guidebooks, uh, mainly to the architecture. There's also various sociological surveys, and lastly, there are memoirs and autobiographies. We start off with looking at guidebooks. The interwar period saw a rapid growth in the, in the ownership of motor cars. In addition, there was considerable interest in hiking and outdoor recreation. And this was linked to an increasing nostalgia for the countryside, which was taken up in radio broadcasts and by publishers through travel guides. The most known series, with wonderfully evocative dust jackets, were published by Baxford. And amongst the in the series, there is a book by A. E. Richardson, The Old Inns of England, which was published in 1934. Such pubs, such guidebooks, tend to comment on historic and interesting inns from an architectural point of view, in the same way that other visitors might look at a church or a historic house. But unlike today's pub and beer guides, they don't describe the facilities to be found inside, let alone the beer. The better sort of guides... Comment on the changes that were taking place in the trade. Of particular interest is George Long's English Inns and Roadhouses, published in 1937. He claims to have visited thousands of pubs drinking nothing stronger than ginger beer. In the book, he laments the closure of many ancient and noteworthy hostelries, such as Dick Withington in Clothfair, Smithfield, the Jack in Northbrook Street in Newbury, and the Sunning Marketplace, Sirencester, which are now occupied by a warehouse, a garage and a branch of a famous change store. And does that seem familiar? So many pubs have gone um, in the last uh, dozen years or so. However, it's not all bad news. He welcomes the restoration of roadside pubs to meet the needs of drivers. Um, In particular, he talks about the Rose and Crown at Harnham near Salisbury, which the author claims he knew for 40 years as a humble pub until new owners peeled off vast quantities of paper from the inside and removed thick layers of plaster from the exterior to create a beautiful old pub. It's still trading today as the mill Inn of the old mill. Um, this is an example of a pub really from the 1930s of travellers wetting their whistle after a walk. It's all seems terribly posed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know which pub it is. Um, the, the book I copied it from... Um, just said it was a kitchen of an old inn somewhere, I don't know where, somewhere in, in, in the West Country, I guess, but um, I don't know. Occasionally, pubs and inn, pubs and hotels are described in guidebooks and accounts of tours around England. One such was Pot Luck in England by, by a left-wing author called Douglas Golding, published in 1936, which contains much grumbling about the quant- quality and expense of hotels and, to a less extent, pubs. Again, nothing is new. Um, Jack has come across examples from uh, the Bing Diaries, etc. 150 years later, the same things were happening. In particular, Golding attacks those pubs which were run by upper-class landlords with more capital than experience. Some, he found, are delightful, others too snobbish and pretentious for words, full of publicity, hunting near socialites, mostly pansies. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we can probably think of pubs that have not, have not dissimilar today. But the best book in, the seri- in, in this tradition is Maurice Gorham, Gorham's account of London boozers, the locals, which was published literally as the Second World War uh, broke out. Charmingly illustrated by Edward Ardizoni. you can s- occasionally see prints from the book in pubs. Um, if you go to the Royal Oak in Borough uh, near Borough Market, for example, they've got a selection up on the walls. Unfortunately, most copies of the book were lost in the war. Um, and a new edition, Back to the Local, was published in 1948, including much about pubs in wartime, but again with the same illustrations. It is a very personal account of London pubs, which were known to the author. Gorm was a producer at the BBC and tended to frequent middle-class hostelries in Soho and thereabouts. He provides wonderful short essays upon, amongst other things, the difference between public and saloon bars, the availability of food, and the street musicians who wandered through the public bars in particular, playing for tips. The book is suffused with nostalgia for a world which was, which was passing. Gorman writes, We have seldom known a pub to be improved in rebuilding, and we have known plenty to be spoiled. And that could probably be the motto of the Publisher Society, I suspect. In some ways, the most informative works of those are the sociological surveys. The first half of the 20th century saw a number of such surveys. The problem is that they concentrate on the proletarian pubs, so are not comprehensive, let alone subjective. There is a definite feeling of the working class as a strange life form. For our purposes, there are two two such surveys that matter. Firstly, is one that's almost been forgotten, the MAP New Survey of London, which was conducted in about 1929, and the results were published in 1935 includes a description of a typical East End pub and the drinkers to be found there. Unfortunately, no equivalent survey was undertaken of the middle classes or the pubs they frequented, which is a shame, really, because it would be really interesting to find more about them. More important, and certainly much much better known, is the mass observation survey called The Pub and the People, which was a detailed survey of pubs in worktown that is Bolton, which was conducted in 1937 and 1938 and published in 1943, and in fact reprinted uh, last year by Faber and Faber. By detailed, I mean really detailed. There are counts of the amount drunk by by the hour. There are detailed descriptions of the topics which were discussed by the customers, and indeed the types of beer that was consumed. This is just the beginning of the sort of fascinating, useless information that they were gathered, and which are now uh, a unique insight into working-class culture of Lancashire in the 1930s that you could find nowhere else. A less rigorous survey was by Ernest Shelley in his English Public House, as it was known. It was published in 1927. Shelley was another teetotaler who set out to survey pubs, but he was less interested in the architectural merits than the people who drank in them. But the book is really a polemic in favour of the improved model pub, although there were some interesting asides, He notes, for example, the decline of the pub call, and describes, again, he describes the topics discussed by the locals. Rather rarer are the memories and the memoirs. Little all history work seems to be done about drinkers' experiences of the period, of the interwar period. Um, Jack's done a bit, I think, but I've come across very little else here and I'll, again, be happy to be pointed in the right direction. One exception is a marvellous account of rural pubs in, Esse- in, sorry, in East Kent, um, really looking at drinkers' experiences before the First World War, which was published in oral history in the mid-1970s. Although, frankly, the experience of drinkers can have changed very little into the, in the interwar period. There are also surprisingly few memoirs by people in the trade. The best known of these is John Fothergill's Diary of an Innkeeper, published in 1931, about the author's experience of running hotels and pubs, particularly the spread at Thame at Tame. In many way, ways, he was a celebrity chef before his time. The diaries are wonderfully snobbish. Only his social equals and betters appreciate his efforts and his cooking. The low orders just don't value him and what he's offering. All they want to do is grumble about the prices and use his toilets without buying a drink. <laughs> Many a landlord might say the same today, of course. You do occasionally find accounts elsewhere, but they are rare. One of which I've just come across the last couple of days in another book was by Bessie Bede, who ran a pub near Whistable, and he wrote mem- she wrote her memoirs, 70 Years Behind Bars, when she was aged 100 in 1978. She describes a world very different from that of experienced by John Fothergill and his customers, where the pub was still the centre of the community for local fishermen and agriculture labourers, and where ball games such as Bagatelle and Devil Amongst the Tailors had to be covered up on Sabbath because it was illegal to play poor ball games on a sun- Sunday. <coughs> In London, are uh, the memoirs by, a, by the daughter of the couple who ran the famous Fitzroy Tavern, where many soho intellectuals drank. And she wrote account about ten years ago um, of the pub, her parents' experiences and her grandparents' experiences, because her grandfather started starting running the pub about 1918. Although she was too young, unfortunately, to remember the 1930s. Perhaps this paucity was because memoir m- writers tend to be middle class, and, mem- and pubs at this time were largely for the working classes. An example of actually a pub in Suffolk, uh, Framlingham. Um, painted by somebody called, I think, E.O. Massingham, uh, in dedicated memory of uh, A.P. Herbert, of you know a pub, a local pub. The man pouring the, the barman looks exactly like uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Imperial <laughs> Germany. He must have escaped after the war, I suppose. So, again, I don't know where the original of this painting is. Um, it'd be interesting to find it. Um, One exception uh, was the writer and darts enthusiast Robin Cook, um, who um, uh, Patrick Chaplin, who's talking next, uh, uh, told me about. Uh, His memoirs, many volumes, describe the pubs he frequented in rural areas, such as the Frog Inn on the edge of the Cotswolds. He wrote that in the 1960s, visiting pubs like these was to enter a strange and now long vanished world. The changes during the last 300 years were negligible. He talks about the changes he thought might have been that cigarettes had replaced uh, clay pipes, uh, lighting was perhaps slightly better with, with um, oil lamps replacing candles, and also the dress maybe had changed a bit as well. <coughs> These books, in total, you still get a, just about get a whiff of what the lost pub of interworld what the lost world of the interwar pub was like. Together, I think they give you a picture of a much variety, greater variety in the type of pubs. There were then, in about 1970 and 1930, about 75,000 pubs, roughly twice as many pubs as there are today. And they vary from the basic rural pubs that Robin Croft Cook visited to urban pubs that were like the Fitzroy Tavern, which attracted the intellectuals of the period, which were really very posh in many ways. Um, Maurice Gorham talks about in London that there were surviving, there were four cider houses, pubs that only sold cider. It's incredible. Uh, and a dozen wine bars that, uh, that you could visit if you preferred wine. One thing that comes across very clearly is how regu- heavily regulated pubs were, with restrictions, as I said, on opening hours, the pursuits of enjoyed there, notably gambling. Uh, and again, in many places, there were perhaps rather joyless places. Um, Pubs were, of course, very widely used by men. Less than a quarter of customers were women, and in, in country areas in particular, women very rarely frequented the pubs, or were overwhelmingly men. Yet, they were centres of the community, in a way that few pubs are today. Maurice Gorham talks of specialised pubs in London, which cater for various groups. He says that there are pubs around Portland Place where you'll feel lost if you do not know the jargon of the rag trade or the BBC. And in the East End, pubs, another writer to find, were community centres where everyone meets, arranges his common activities, but lays his personal cares aside and satisfies some of his social cravings. And again, the clientele were very clearly divided by class. Most pubs were used by working class men, but there were also middle class pubs and even a few upper class establishments. Even in working class pubs, a better class of drinker would use the saloon bar. In Hull, the, journalists, the young journalist who were done used the black boy. He wrote in his memoirs, we would always go into the front room, lacking the courage to go down the whitewashed passage to the smoke room. Sit, we would sit and listen to the fights and the coarse wearing of the women instead of watching them as we would wish. <laughs> Inclusion. I think i come across two views, and again, I think this is something that really following up with Jack said earlier. Which come, There are two views that come from the accounts. Firstly, there was a nostalgia for a culture and tradition that the writers then were thinking were passing. Pubs are closing, pubs are changing. Um, what the writer Basil Nicholson wrote in 1941 was spittoons and Arcadia. The second was one from the social reformers, from the people that didn't actually go to the pubs. That was mildest and sorious about the drinker, who really should be told that, he should not spend his time in the pubs. He'd be much better at home with the family, listening to the, to the wireless, and spending his money on things that would benefit the family rather than in, in enjoying himself in the public house. Which view won out? Well, I think we have a conference next year, which I hope we will do. I'll talk about the Second World War, because one view definitely won out, and it's the one that um, I think you might be surprised about. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Simon. Okay. This event was recorded live as part of the Pub History Society Conference on the 20th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.